Well, good morning, Soul Church. Great to be with you. My name is Josiah Sabino. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, um, I get to serve here as the college ministry director at the Salt Company. Any students out there? So we like to hear. Um, if you're a student out there, Thursday nights, 8 p.m., right back here, it gets a little crazy. So we'd love to see you out there. Um, hey, if it's your first time ever at church, you came on a good week because we are continuing our series in the book of 1 Samuel. And this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 12. So if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Samuel chapter 12. And while you do, let me ask you, have you ever had a massive fail moment in your life? Like a moment that there was just no other way to put it. You just absolutely failed. Uh, maybe it was a time you forgot a really important date, maybe an anniversary or Valentine's Day. Maybe that's too soon for someone out there. Um, maybe you just, you botched something. Have you ever had just an absolute fail moment? Well, I remember one in my life that took place during my engagement uh, to my wife, Michelle. So <laughs> a handful of years ago, I was wrapping up college, and I had just proposed, and I was in the super exciting season where you're about to get married and spend forever together, and we're in the final stages. And for some reason, I decided to pick up um, the safe hobby of skateboarding. Now, before you judge me, um, in fifth grade, I actually could do some pretty cool things on a skateboard. Um, so I was really just picking up a hobby. Well, during this time um, that I picked up skateboarding, and when I say picked it up, I went all in. Like, half the battle with skateboarding is just looking the part. Um, so I'm, I'm rocking the skinny jeans, I'm drinking cans of Monster for no reason, backwards hat, like, the whole nine yards. Well, you can imagine my wife, Michelle, just naturally started to become increasingly concerned. She's like, Josiah, what is going on? Like, this isn't you, first off. Like, you're a sports guy. You've always been more of a sports guy. Like, what are you doing? Do those pants even fit? Um, but also, she was, you know, just concerned. Like, this is her soon-to-be husband. Like, you're supposed to be getting more mature, not less mature. And... Uh, and I'm like, yeah, but did you consider if I become amazing? Like, have we considered that option, that I become a pro skateboarder? So Michelle's having her doubts. We're barreling towards marriage. And um, during this time, just to make matters worse, I kept getting injured. Um, I have historically bad ankles. This has been kind of my curse my whole life. And skateboarding doesn't go well with that. And Michelle sat me down after I had just injured my ankle and, you know, just told me, like, Josiah, you need to be done. Like, this has to stop. You need to be done skateboarding. I'm sick of it. And I'll never forget her saying, can you imagine if you were at our wedding with a broken foot in a boot? And I was like, yeah, oh, my word, that would be terrible. Like, I'm at our wedding with a broken foot. I, yeah, I'm done. Well, a couple days later, Fortunately, I went out skateboarding again to pursue my pro career. And what happened was I was doing this really cool trick where, and this is a really cool trick in skateboarding. You just jump up onto the curb with your skateboard. You're like riding and you pop up there. Super cool trick. 
Um, not really, but, but as I'm landing, my blasted weak ankle gives out on me, and I hear this in my foot, and I instantly am in excruciating pain. I'm like, oh, no, this is not good. So I go over to Michelle's house at the time. I'm trying to play it cool, like, hey, Michelle, how we doing? And uh, quickly, you know, we realize that I'm in a lot of pain. We go to the hospital. I find out that I have broken the largest bone in my foot. I have to have immediate surgery. And I'm going to be in a boot for six to eight weeks. And the wedding is four weeks away. So, yeah, just an absolute fail. Like, there's, there's no way you can spin that story in my favor. Just a fail. Well, it's one thing to have a moment like that in life, but I've found it's an entirely different thing to have a moment like that in your walk with God. What I want to ask you this morning is what do you do when you experience a moment of absolute spiritual failure? What do you do when in a weak moment, you do the thing you said, I will never do that again. What do you do when your relationship with him or her drifts from purity to compromise? What do you do when it's your sin that fractures your marriage, that fractures a friendship? I've had moments like that in my life spiritually. Moments where I've just thought to myself, how in the world did I do this again? How could I let this happen again? I said I would never do it. And if you're anything like me, it's in these moments of failure that I can begin to believe this voice in my head that says, I have messed up so badly, my sin is so great in this moment, that maybe someday God will forgive me, but for now, he's just disappointed in me, just at best putting up with me. And what happens is because of my failure, I slowly begin to distance myself from God. My life that once maybe felt spiritually warm starts to feel more and more spiritually cold. And you might be there this morning. You're here at church on Sunday, but there is sin in your life or recent failure in your life that has separated you from God and you feel absolutely broken hearted about it. Well, if that's you, I believe that our text this morning in 1 Samuel 12 has something to say to you about how God responds to failure. And it's in these verses we're going to see God speak to a people who, like we often do, had blown it in a major way. So, you have a Bible, 1 Samuel 12, little context here. Let me just briefly summarize this. Last week in chapter 11, Israel decided to make Saul their king. And um, right now, Samuel is giving his final public speech as the judge of Israel. This is sort of like Samuel's last day on the job, his last day of work. These are his last words to the people in Israel before they shift from uh, their theocratic rule of God to now a king. And it's what he says to them about a failure they made 
that are incredibly important. Look at these words in 1 Samuel 12. I'll read the first six verses. Then Samuel said to all Israel, final speech before them as their judge, I have carefully listened to everything you said to me and placed a king over you. Now you can see that the king is leading you. As for me, I'm old and gray, and my sons are here with you. I have led you from my youth until now. Here I am. Bring charges against me before the Lord and, and his anointed. Whose ox or donkey have I taken? Who have I wronged or mistreated? Who gave me a bribe to overlook something? I will return it to you. You haven't wronged us. You haven't mistreated us. And you haven't taken anything from anyone, they responded. He said to them, the Lord is a witness against you. And his anointed is a witness today that you haven't found anything in my hand. He is a witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and who had brought your ancestors up from the land of Egypt is a witness. Okay, let's pause right here. What is going on? Samuel's like, I never took your donkeys. What? What, what is he saying here? Well, Samuel's essentially doing a self-reflective moment of his leadership from when he was a little boy until now of Israel. And what he's essentially saying is, Israel, for a moment, I want you to almost like put me in a courtroom and just look at my leadership and see if you can find anything that was wrong about it. And what they find is pretty remarkable, isn't it? Just to honor Samuel for a moment and his leadership, notice the guy's character. It says, who have I wronged or mistreated in all my life of leading you? Whose donkey? What bribe? Who have I mistreated? And the people say in verse 4, you haven't wronged us. We've got nothing bad to say about your character. That is pretty impressive stuff. His whole life of leadership, they've got nothing. And just to raise the stakes, Samuel even says in verse 5 and 6, did you catch this? Beyond just the people being my witness, even God is my witness, hasn't found anything in my hand. Even beyond the public places of my leadership that you see, the God who knows even the depths of my heart hasn't found anything wrong. It's found me blameless. Now, why is Samuel doing this? Is he trying to boast in this moment? He's like, look at me, guys. Like, wasn't I amazing? No. There's two things he's doing specifically you got to see, and both are to cement the point of what he's about to say. The first thing Samuel's showing the people of Israel is that his leadership under God is meant to contrast what it's going to be like under Saul. Now, Samuel isn't being arrogant in this moment, but he's sort of passing the baton to Saul, saying, like, hey, whatever happens next, it's on you, guys. It's on you. This would essentially be like if my wife told me, hey, tonight you're going to make dinner, Josiah. But, like, just know, when did I ever wrong you in making dinner? Like, haven't I been good to you? Haven't you enjoyed the food that I've made you? And like, whatever comes next as you make us peanut butter and jellies, like, that's on you. That's on you. Secondly, Samuel's also validating the grounds for the correction he's about to give the people. Samuel is giving the people a reason to trust the words that are about to come next. 
Look at my character. You can lean into what I'm about to say. Well, now with his life examined, his leadership approved, Samuel's now going to speak directly to the people. Look at verse 7. Now, now that you've looked at me, present yourselves so I may confront you before the Lord about all the righteous acts he's done for you and your ancestors. Samuel's about to turn his attention to the crowd. And actually, the language here of present yourselves means stand still. In other words, Israel, if you weren't paying attention through my whole little opening bit, now's the time to dial in. Now is the time to pay attention to what I'm about to say. And look at what he says. I'll read 7 through 11. Present yourselves that I may confront you before the Lord about all the righteous acts he has done for you and your ancestors. When Jacob went to Egypt, your ancestors cried out to the Lord, and he sent them Moses and Aaron, who led your ancestors out of Egypt and settled them in the place. But they forgot the Lord their God. So he handed them over to Sisera, commander of the army of Hezor, to the Philistines, and to the king of Moab. These enemies fought against them. Then they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, for we abandoned the Lord and worshipped the, ba the Baals and the Ashereths. Now rescue us from the power of our enemies, and we will serve you. So the Lord sent Jerubbabel, Barak, Japheth, and Samuel. He rescued you from the power of the enemies around you, and you lived securely. What an interesting way to start a correction. Samuel starts what is about to be a correction by telling them to look back at their past. It's almost like he clicks play on a Netflix documentary series titled Israel's History and just says, watch, look back for a minute. What do you see as you look back at your past? Why is he going to the past? To show the people an ongoing pattern of how faithful God has been to them despite their unfaithfulness to him. Samuel is showing them both the goodness of God to them in the past and a repeated cycle of the people of Israel. If you've never read the book of Judges, let me just summarize it for you. The entire book of Judges is, is really just the people of God are doing great under God's leadership they turn from God and shipwreck their life, and then God rescues them. And then it all happens again, and again, and again. Samuel says, look at God's past faithfulness to you. But now he's going to address the present moment. This has all been going somewhere. He recounts the history of God's goodness to show them the true poverty of their most recent decision. Here comes his correction. God was good to you, but, verse 12, but when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was coming against you, you said to me, no, we must have a king reign over us, even though the Lord your God is your king. Now, here is the king you've chosen, the one you requested. Look, this is the king the Lord has placed over you. And if I'm Saul in that moment, I'm like, uh, thanks. Samuel says, Israel, despite experiencing all the past faithfulness of God, you made a quick fix decision based out of fear instead of faith. This was a people who had witnessed the power and deliverance of God 
more than any other people in the history of the world. They had just been delivered from Egypt. They had seen firsthand God deliver them through 10 supernatural plagues. They had seen God split the Red Sea and then close the Red Sea back in on Pharaoh, the most powerful ruler in history. God has come through for them again and again and again. And despite all his faithfulness to them, did you see Nahash? That guy's kind of scary. Let's go get a king. What? Israel, unlike any people on earth that experienced the goodness of God, and yet in a moment of weakness, went right back to trusting in themselves. And before we get angry at Israel, I think these words from Samuel are actually a perfect description to describe what we do every single time we choose our sin instead of God. Just like the people in the story, we too have experienced the unmistakable grace of God. And yet, don't we also, in a weak moment, make a Nahash decision out of fear? God, I know you've been good to me all of these times in the past, but I'm still going to watch that. God, I know you've come through for me time and time and time again when I didn't think you would, but I'm still going to give it over to fear and anxiety and worry and not trust that you're a God who can take care of me. Still going to trust in myself. And haven't you noticed when we do that, just like the people of Israel, our sin maybe promises short-term security, but never delivers long-term satisfaction. People got themselves in trouble every single time they trusted themselves. Maybe we've done that too. Turn from God. But look at what Samuel says to them next. Verse 14. If you fear the Lord, worship and obey him, and if you don't rebel against the Lord's command, then both you and the king who reigned over you will follow the Lord your God. However, if you disobey the Lord and rebel against his command, the Lord's hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Do you see the slight cord of hope here? Samuel says in verse 14, despite your decision in a weak moment to sin, if you fear the Lord and you obey the Lord, then there's still an opportunity to turn to God, even in your mistake. But Samuel then says, but if you won't, verse 15, if you continue to dishonor God and rebel against him, then the Lord will be against you. You'll be given over to your sin, which was always the consequence that God gave people over to their sin. Samuel is bringing them to this fork in the road moment. Turn back to God or keep living in your sin. And just to show them now how serious God was about this mistake and how serious God was about their sin, look at what Samuel does in verse 16. This is a supernatural, crazy thing he does in verse 16. Samuel says, now, therefore, present yourselves and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Isn't the wheat harvest today? I will call on the Lord and he will send thunder and rain so that you will recognize what an immense evil you committed in the Lord's sight by requesting a king for yourselves. Samuel called on the Lord, and on that day, the Lord sent thunder and rain. As a result, all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. In the middle of his speech, 
Samuel goes, this is how serious God is about your sin. He calls down a thunderstorm. Now, that's not very scary to you, right? We live in Gainesville or Rainsville. We have experienced a lot of thunderstorms. But here's the thing. During this time, this would have been terrifying. Mainly because, did you see what he said? It was the harvest season. And in the harvest season in Israel, it never rained. Never rained, not a drop. This would be like if on the 4th of July in Miami, all of a sudden a blizzard came into town and it just starts snowing. Like people would be like, what is going on? Is it the end of the world? Like this is crazy. He gets it, man. He gets it. For the people, it says, a great fear came over the people. Look at what they say as they're starting to realize God is so serious about their sin. Verse 19, they pleaded with Samuel, pray to the Lord your God for your servants so we won't die. For we have added to all our sins the evil of requesting a king for yourselves. You see what's happening. What, what just started is Samuel's last day of work speech has turned into a full-blown thunderstorm, has turned into a full heartbrokenness over their sin. The people have realized what they've done. It says they saw their sin as a great evil, and it says they're terrified. This isn't just, oh, yeah, that was pretty bad. This is, we're going to die. God's so upset with us that he might just wipe us off the face of the earth. And to truly understand how devastated they were, I want you to see something so important in this story. I want you to see a wording they use in verse 19 that might be one of the most important barometers of where their hearts really were. Look at verse 19. Look at what they said. Pray to the Lord, your God. Do you see what's happening here? The people aren't just heartbroken over their sin. They're now referring to God in a way that suggests they're no longer worthy to be called his people. Call your God, Samuel. We failed. It's over for us. He's your God. What a shocking thing for them to say your God when in all the passages before this, they have clearly referred to God as their God. And Samuel in this very text said the God is your God. But after their moment of failure, no, your God. Well, what Samuel said next had to be some of the most unexpected words for them to hear in this moment of fear. Look at these words in verse 20. Samuel replied to them, don't be afraid. Even though you have committed all this evil, don't turn away from following the Lord. Instead, worship the Lord with all your heart. What a statement. Samuel had every right to say in his final moment as their judge, Israel, you know what? You had it coming. You do deserve to die. I hope you die. You wicked, sinful, terrible people. And yet instead we get this line. Don't be afraid. Even though you committed all this evil, don't turn from God, worship him. What an interesting thing to say considering Samuel just called down a thunderstorm from God and then says, don't be afraid. It's like, be afraid, but don't be afraid. 
be afraid. Don't be afraid. What is going on? Well, I think Samuel is showing them and showing us something really important that in this moment. And that's that God is incredibly serious about our sin, and we must be as well. But in the very same breath, don't jump to the conclusion that when you sin, you are disqualified from relationship to God. Be serious, be heartbroken even, but don't distance yourself from God. Come back to God. And I believe Samuel in this moment is actually distinguishing between two very similar but different responses that we can have when we fail in our sin. And he is highlighting the difference, I believe, between conviction and condemnation. Conviction and condemnation. I want you to, to understand what those words mean. The Gospel Coalition gives a helpful definition between conviction and condemnation. It says, conviction of sin is a tool used by God to reveal sin in our life and free us from it in repentance. Condemnation is a weapon of the enemy and only leads to guilt and shame. Though conviction and condemnation often feel similar, the key difference between them is their end destination. Conviction always leads you back to God. Condemnation always separates you from God. Conviction, it's from God. It's intended to make you feel sorrowful over your sin, but it's always intended to bring you back to God. Condemnation, it's from the enemy. It's always intended to make you feel ashamed, hopeless, worthless, and separate you from God. What do the people believe they are in verse 19? What do you think? We added to our sins, we're going to die, pray to the Lord your God, condemned. What do Samuel's words in verse 20 sound like? D don't be afraid. Even though you committed immense evil, don't turn away. Worship him. Do you see the difference? Samuel here isn't minimizing the people's sin, but he's showing them how God's people should always respond to failure, not by moving further from the presence of God, but moving closer to God, immediately turning back to God when we fail. And I believe some of you have to hear this this morning because I'm worried that some of you are living in a condemned camp with God. And you might not say it like that, but how you respond when you sin would say otherwise. Instead of running back to God the moment that you've sinned, you instead choose to only listen to the enemy's voice and live underneath the cloudy gray skies of guilt and shame. And slowly what happens in this process is you begin to distance yourself from God. And I have seen this unfold so many times in my life where I sin, and instead of running back to God in quick repentance, experiencing quick forgiveness, I start to believe these subtle lies. God doesn't love you as much as he used to. A real Christian wouldn't do that. Are you really saved? That sin was too ugly. And then here's what happens. I stop praying, stop reading my Bible, stop seeking the Lord every single day. Just, I'll clean up my life for a while, and then when I get it together, I'll come back to you. But here's what happens every single time. I'm living subtly condemned, so I never actually experience true restoration and change. 
I continue to live in my sin, never experiencing real change. Which is why Samuel, I think, warns them in the next verse, verse 21, turn back to God and don't turn to worthless things. Don't in, in this moment of condemnation turn to more sin. Samuel says, when you blow it before God, don't turn away, turn back. But how? How is that possible? How can a people who make royal mistakes against God want to worship him all of a sudden? That's the last thing I want to do when I blow it. That's the last thing I want to do when I sin is worship God, come back to God. How is that possible? Well, I think what Samuel says next is the key to understanding the whole passage. Look at verse 22. The Lord will not abandon his people because of his great name and because he has determined to make you his own people. Samuel says, the Lord won't abandon you. Samuel says, the Lord won't leave you. Why? Because of his great name. Because he is determined to make you his people. Do you see what's being said? The sole reason you can come running confidently back into the presence of God, even when you fail, is not because you've proven your ability to be faithful to God, but because he's proven his ability to be faithful to you. Even though you fail him, he's not going to fail you because you're his people, and that's the key. You're his people. The people of Israel lived underneath covenant. They lived underneath a promise from God where he said, I'm going to be your people, and I'm going to be your God. I'm going to work. I'm not going to abandon you. Your confidence to experience forgiveness is in my work. Here's the message of the gospel coming blazing through the final words of Samuel's speech. God's faithfulness to us is what brought us into relationship with him. It was his faithfulness, his determination, his kindness in the form of sending his very own son, Jesus Christ, that even allowed us to be his people in the first place. We weren't saved because we were good, but because he was. And God was determined to make us his own people, a people for himself. And now if we have been found to be in Christ Jesus in covenant with God, then Romans 8, 1 applies to us. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? That even when we fail God, that God will always say to you, don't be afraid, even though you've sinned, I will never abandon you, I will never stop forgiving you, I will never stop loving you, I will never stop caring for you, because you are now in Christ. Even your ability to sin will never match my ability to forgive. Because you are in Christ. When we hear Satan's voice that says you, your failures are final, this is who you are now, you guilty little sinner. We can actually turn the devil's message back on himself. Martin Luther, I want you to hear what he famously said about turning this back on the devil. When you say, I'm a sinner, you give me armor and weapons against yourself so that with your own sword, I may cut your throat and tread under your feet for Christ died for sinners. As often as you object that I'm a sinner, so often you remind me of the benefit of Christ, my Redeemer, on whose shoulders and not mine lie all my sins. So when you say I'm a sinner, 
you do not terrify me, but comfort me immeasurably. The gospel says to every single one of us that it is only Satan's voice that would seek to separate you from God's mercy. In Christ, God's grace is always available to you right now. And there's one final detail in the story that you can't miss, and it's when Samuel gives this speech. It's all about the timing. Every commentary I read about 1 Samuel chapter 12 says that it actually happens within the context of 1 Samuel chapter 11. Now, that's a boring stat to you, but here's why that's really, really important. Saul's coronation as king and Samuel's final speech almost happened back to back. So the people have just, on the same stage the people have just sinned against God, is the same stage that Samuel comes back up and says, but there's hope. It's grace. You can still come back to God. His forgiveness, it's immediate. Right in the middle of your mess, forgiveness is available to you. Right when you failed God, he's ready to restore you. Don't be afraid. Come right back. Reminds me of a moment with my dad uh, about a year ago. I had a really, really rough week. It's one of those weeks where you're just stuck in a level of sin and shame and guilt and I had sort of isolated myself from family and friends. I was sitting in my house just sad. And I texted my dad, uh, as you do when you're just feeling ashamed, a little cryptic message, I'm not doing well, period. <laughs> and the next thing I hear a handful of moments later, he doesn't reply, but I hear a familiar sound. It's the sound of a blue Toyota Corolla pulling up to my house, and I go over to my window, and sure enough, my dad is getting out of his car, marching into my house. He doesn't even knock. Just marches into my house, gives me the biggest hug, and says, I drove over here to remind you of who you are. You're my son. And I just think, if that's my dad, a human if that's his capacity to forgive, what is God like? How much more does he want to restore you and bring you back into relationship right now? The language of the whole text is active, not passive. Meaning that when Samuel kept saying, turn back to God, turn back to God, another way of reading it was turn back to God today. Turn back today. Experience forgiveness today. Don't keep living in your sin. Turn back. He's got mercy for you. It was C.S. Lewis who said this. Satan's objective is for you to live in the past or the future. Either reveling in the sin of the past or planning to deal with it later. But he fears Christians who will obey God today. And the last words from Samuel are these. As for me, I vow that I will not sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. I will teach you the good and right way. Above all, fear the Lord and worship him faithfully. Consider the great things he has done. However, if you continue to do what is evil, you'll be swept away. Samuel doesn't condemn. He doesn't bash him over the head. He says, nope, I want to pray for you. Because I know what God is like. I know the forgiveness that's available to you. And that's what I want to do right now. Is pray that you 
might experience the forgiveness of God right now, today. Do you bow your heads with me? Lord God, it is so clear from this text that you are so incredibly serious about our sin. And for those that are not in Christ Jesus, they are under condemnation. They haven't found forgiveness in you, but to the people who have, God, who are eternally right with you, God, I pray that if Satan is whispering lies to discourage them and separate them from your presence and your goodness and your favor, that today would be the day that they turn back to you. They experience the warm embrace of a father who gave up his own son so that he could have right relationship with them. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in your name. Amen.